I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. In the beginning, the end. So where to start? Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. guest is Patricia Musum. She's a Western-trained medical doctor and pioneer in the synthesis of science, holistic health, and contemporary spirituality. She's the founder of Transformational Medicine, a whole-person approach to health and well-being, and she's the author of Beyond Medicine, a physician's revolutionary prescription for achieving absolute health and finding inner peace. Trish, welcome back again. It's, it's wonderful to have you back. Thank you, Tonio. I'm truly honored that you wanted to have me back. Again, I, I love this book and I love how deep you go into something that is very, very dear to my heart that I think everyone can benefit immensely from. So I think this is a, a worthy topic to, to keep delving and diving more deeply into. Thank you. Thank you. 
so I thought before anything else, I would just love to know if there's something in particular that you find especially fascinating in all of this that you would like to go more deeply into and that you think people would benefit from hearing more about. You know, my favorite section in the book is part four of the book, and it's called Beyond the Guest House, the Unseen World. And this is really a passion of mine, a deep and abiding interest and a passion. The, the content of this part, which encompasses two chapters, and it's information that may not be known to everybody. It's certainly not information that's put out there in the mainstream. In this part four, Beyond the Guest House, The Unseen World, I spend time in chapter 12 talking about consciousness. And I describe the notion that consciousness might persist before we're born. Consciousness being some element of us that identifies us uniquely, individually. That some aspect of us some aspect of consciousness may exist before we're born and that some aspect of consciousness, some aspect of us may persist after we die. And I offer up a lot of supportive science that suggests that these notions are not woo-woo, so to speak. I describe also the fact that ancient wisdom speaks very deeply to these notions that consciousness, some aspect of ourselves, exists beyond the body. So I, I spend time in this chapter detailing the research. I share some personal stories of which I bore witness to phenomena that certainly defied how we traditionally understand in Western medicine and in neuroscience in particular, consciousness and mind. We tend to think that consciousness and mind is uh, localized to the brain and exists only because of the brain and doesn't act or interact with anything beyond the brain. Um, I offer up the notion that perhaps consciousness transcends our understanding of linear time and our understanding of three-dimensional space. And again, some of that might be woo-woo for people out there, but I offer up all of that supportive science by very good scientists, researchers, with a lot of credibility, academic credibility, which just supports their research because it is a field that's considered beyond the mainstream. And I offer it all up because I would love readers who may be skeptical to be open to the notion that this just might be true. And I offer it up because I want to introduce this notion that, well, what if it were really true? How might it change how we experience life? How might it change how we experience illness? How might it change how we experience the notions of dying and death for ourselves and for those around us, near and dear to us? And I, I, I offer that perhaps we might be less fearful of illness, less fearful of dying and death, 
and in fact, fear less of these very natural aspects of our humanness that at least in my culture of Western medicine, and I'm very much um, a Western doctor trained in a, in a Western medical world, and I live in that world, I inhabit that world. But for those of us in that world, we tend to horribleize illness, dying, and death. We tend to create an environment of fear around illness, dying, and death. And fear is a risk factor for illness, dying, and death. Fear toggles off our immune system. Fear creates stress in our body. Fear moves us to a state of dis-ease and can aggravate and even be a cause of disease in the body. So I offer up all of these fantastical notions with the hope that readers might be swayed if they're skeptical. And again, something I think I might have said in one of our earlier chats is I'm hoping that this book doesn't just appeal to those who are open to holistic medicine and mind-body medicine and all that goes along with that, but perhaps I might attract people who are interested and curious, and especially those people who are interested and curious, I offer up this science to hope that they might be able to suspend their disbelief so that wrapping their heads around these ideas is not so fantastical. I'll just say a little bit more that the next chapter, chapter 13, is entitled Miracles Are the Natural Order of Things. And in this chapter, I share my personal stories of meetings with some remarkable people who had remarkable abilities, abilities that, again, transcended our concepts of space and time and how the mind works. Healers, shamans, mystics. And I propose that Miracles are actually the natural order of things when we get out of the way and when we can experience what I'll return to, which is an essential theme of the book, this place of stillness, this place of peace, this place of quiet within from whence all that we're needing arises. And that place of peace is absolute health or simply peace of mind. It's a place of peace, free from thoughts that agitate free from emotions that may keep us stuck or make us think we have to act on them. That place of peace is where all can arise. So that part four, again, is my favorite section of the book. And it, it's, it may be a section that people didn't anticipate they'd find when they started reading the book, but it, it's very integral to the themes of the book and to these notions that healing beyond the bounds of Western medicine is possible, and that manifesting even what may apparently be miracles, but are not miracles at all, is absolutely possible. And that is the omnipotence of the mind and the, the true nature of consciousness. Well, all of that is a very dearly favorite realm for me as well. So I would love to dive into that. And um, maybe we could talk about some of the people you've encountered that you just alluded to and some of the 
out-of-the-box experiences you've had or observed, and then bring it down to earth, ground it in a way that skeptics could appreciate, and so that we can we can really integrate it into our understanding of our reality or sure. our sense of reality. Yeah. Well, I think before I share stories of those miracles that I bore witness to, I'd like to share a little bit of what I write in chapter 12. Chapter 13 is the miracles or the natural order of things chapter. Chapter 12 is called unconsciousness beyond mind and body, beyond space and time. And I think it can help the skeptics to know a little bit of that research before we go into the detail about the miracles. There is a wide, robust body of research by, as I mentioned earlier, fine scientists exploring these notions of consciousness that I described. I start off the chapter by sharing a personal story of my mom who was in her process of dying and my brother and I were with her for the last six weeks of her life and when she was near very near to leaving her body she started having what I would call out-of-body experiences she seemed to be having conversations with people that weren't present in the room. She was at home. We were with her at her home, which happened to be closer to you (laughs) than where I am in New York City in the rural woods of New England. She started having conversations with her sister who lived in Australia and one of her brothers who was no longer alive. And this is a very common phenomenon described by people bearing witness to those who are near death, that they have um, near death communications. So it was very interesting and, and also comical. We, we, we were, were kind of humored by it. My mom said to us, what's the matter? Don't you see them? So, you know, apparently she was having some sort of experience in which she was seeing in her mind her two siblings and conversing with them. And I'm getting a little bit off topic, so let me get back. I just mentioned that because that's how I start this chapter off on consciousness. And then I go on to describe a fair amount of the excellent research exploring these notions that consciousness, mind, if you will, that aspect that we define as something that is unique to each and every one of us, doesn't reside in the brain, doesn't reside in the body for all that, and it may very well exist beyond our being alive. So one of the most profoundly significant early researchers was somebody at Princeton University by the name of Dr. Robert John. Dr. Robert John, I need to give his background because it really lends import to his work, was a, he's no longer with us, but he was the dean of the engineering school at Princeton. He was a world-renowned scientist whose expertise was in electric spacecraft propulsion. 
he pioneered the technology that fueled long distance rockets, like the ones that go to Mars. He's written textbooks and his textbook on rocket propulsion is still the authority for people in his field. Well, he got involved in studying mind matter experiments. I got to know him when I was teaching medical students at a local medical school in New York City at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. I was introducing them to alternative complementary medicine, which is what we called it all at the time. And he and his partner and laboratory manager, Dr. Brenda Dunn, pioneered very important experiments exploring the relationship between mind and matter. And specifically what they did is they designed experiments where an untrained operator, they called them untrained operators, meaning somebody who wasn't known to be psychic, would interact with an electronic machine. And they endeavored to determine whether that person's intention could affect that electronic machine. And what they found out was, indeed, I wouldn't be telling the story otherwise, that indeed the statistics, now because they were an engineering lab and they were working with machines, they could run tens of thousands of trials. And for those who may not be familiar with the nature of statistics, the more trials you can run, the more power to your statistics. Statistics all has to do with probability. So what they did is they explored whether somebody sitting in front of an electronic number generator, which is what the device they were using, could affect the output of that electronic device. And indeed, the statistics showed that more often than not, an untrained individual called a human operator could do just that. Then they did experiments that explored whether or not those untrained human operators could affect the machine at a distance. So they had machines in Brazil and Kenya, for example, and they had individuals intending the machine at the time that the machine ran in New Jersey. And indeed, the statistics were still robustly in favor of that person interacting with the machine. They also did experiments that they called time-displaced experiments. They had the person intend the machine at a certain time, and they ran the machine after they intended the machine. And still here, the statistics supported the interaction between the person and the machine. So the statistics basically said it's impossible, nearly impossible, that these could be chance effects. That's how statistics determined effects via probability. And then finally, the last type of experiment that they did, which may be very hard for people to wrap their heads around, and I tell you, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it because it defies how we as human beings, at least how our cognitive thinking brains and our five senses experience time. We're talking right now, it's a little afternoon on Saturday morning, and we understand this to be a little bit before one o'clock on Saturday afternoon. What they did is they had people intend the machine after the machine ran. They had people intend the machine after the machine ran. So they might run the machine on a Friday morning and they'd tell the people to intend the machine on Monday afternoon. 
they blinded the experiment so they couldn't see what was happening to the machine on Friday morning. But after the people intended that machine on Monday afternoon, they ran the numbers, they crunched the numbers. And here, too, the statistics were robustly supporting that interaction effect between that person and the machine. So this was very, very important research, very, very important research because it suggests much about intention about the mind that we've not considered within my culture, Western medicine, we don't consider in neuroscience. Robert and Brenda published their research in peer-reviewed physics and engineering journals, which means they had to pass muster by expert physicists and engineers to get in their journals. I'll have to say, unfortunately, this research hasn't trickled down into medicine. We don't read physics and engineering journals. They've published books for lay people as well, but we don't tend to read lay books as well within the community of Western medicine. But their research still persists as being one of the kind of groundbreakers in the latter part of the last century that served to support further research. And I'll say there's research in consciousness and parapsychology. Much of it has also been going on before their researchers. There were academic centers. One of them was at Duke University for many, many years studying parapsychology. And I actually am not keen on the term parapsychology because para sometimes has a denigrative term, basically the idea that Mind can affect matter, mind can transcend linear and spatial time. So this wide body of research exists. This wide body of research really does suggest that our minds work differently than the way our frontal or cognitive thinking brains experience them and our five senses experience them. Um, There's so much more in the chapter, I'm not going to go into it, but I describe the research on near-death experiences, on end-of-life experiences, like my mom's communications. I describe their research on parapsychology. I share some personal stories as well. And again, I offer all this up so hopefully people might suspend their disbelief. I spend the next chapter, chapter 13, describing some more miraculous phenomena that defy those conventional beliefs, that conventional understanding of mind and consciousness, and even reality, because we're we're talking about reality. Is one o'clock today really before three o'clock tomorrow? You know, and again, this may this is hard for me to wrap my head around. Um, I think for people who have had out-of-body experiences it may be less so but it's still hard for me to wrap my head around and I've had out-of-body experiences. So in chapter 13 I share my stories of healers and mystics and shamans and these individuals whom I describe have apparent abilities that seem to be miraculous and I'll say they seem to be miraculous because I again want to offer that miracles are truly the natural order of things when we get out of the way. Probably the most powerful experience I had was with a man named Muhammad. Muhammad's full name was Muhammad Safwat el-Amin. He was an Egyptian, I would say, healer and mystic. And he had what we call Sidi abilities. Those are, that's a term that's used in 
and yogic lore, classical yogic lore. These are psychic abilities. He had the ability to materialize objects. He had the ability to teleport his body. He was able to see events happening in the future. And I met him actually when I was ailing with some sort of illness that I couldn't figure out. I couldn't figure out. My doctor couldn't figure out for quite a number of weeks. I was laid low. I was exhausted. I was spiking fevers and having night sweats. And I spent most of my days in bed and all the tests and exams had come up with nothing. And a wonderful friend, dear friend and colleague of mine, who's an open-minded physician, suggested meeting Muhammad. <laughs> and, um, so I met Muhammad and I had a number of sessions with him and in his sessions, he doesn't do quote healing work unquote. And I will just take a step aside here to mention that nobody heals us. I mentioned him as a healer, but nobody heals us. Healers help us connect to our inner healer. And I offer this as a very important point, because if you're seeking out a healer to be fixed or healed, it's going to disempower your own body's ability to heal. The minute you give your power away, you weaken your power to heal. So, you know, I'm describing him as a healer, but he actually is a healer in the sense that he helps us to access our inner healer, because that's how healing happens. So he had these abilities. He could read minds. He could predict the future. He could materialize answers to questions on a paper floating in a bowl of water. I know it may sound crazy. Um, he could light candles across a room without touching them. I bore witness to him materializing objects like crystals, even money. I personally witnessed all of what I just described. And I will say he didn't do all this to impress people, but he used these abilities as his medicines for invoking faith and for engendering or for facilitating healing, for helping people to believe that healing was possible, that anything was possible, for helping people to be free of the fear that can make us sick, keep us sick, and can impede healing. And for helping people to believe that they can change their lives, even when things feel impossible to change. Because belief, belief is omnipotent medicine. So he was one person and I ended up collaborating with him. And I, I, actually, let me just backtrack a bit. Um, after a number of sessions with him, I entered this place of deep peace and deep knowing. and I basically figured out what was going on in my body. I figured out what the issue was and then I was able to cure it, to fix it, so to speak. And after that, I ended up collaborating with him. We ended up working together and partnering with another friend of mine whom I mentioned in the book, who was a remarkable man named Alex, who he actually lived to be 112 years old. He got himself in the New York Times because at one point he was the oldest person in the world. And he was pretty sharp until the very end. Alex was a remarkable person, a Holocaust survivor who dreamed of being a ship captain. He ended up being a zoologist. And then his second career was as a parapsychologist. And we ended up collaborating on research experiments and observational studies with Muhammad and with other people. That was Muhammad. 
somebody else that I mentioned in this chapter is somebody who's since had a highly, highly publicized fall from grace. And I mentioned that in the book. But I don't discount this person's abilities in spite of that. It's somebody by the name of Joao Dedei, who was known as a, quote, spiritual healer based in a small, rather remote, unknown area of Brazil in a place called Abajanya. And he was considered a gifted spiritual worker and, quote, miracle worker. And people traveled from far and wide to, to see him. He was so known that even Oprah Winfrey paid him a visit. Again, he had a highly publicized fall from grace. I describe it in the book. I won't go into details. But again, I don't discount the value of my experience with him. They helped me to find my way to healing. He could perform, quote unquote, spiritual and bloodless surgery. And physicians have seen that. Physicians have borne witness to that. There are case reports by physicians. Now, I haven't borne witness to that, but there are case reports of diagnoses from depression to hepatitis, from arthritis to cancer. His work was linked to cures. These case reports are by physicians and scientists who have studied his work and that of other similar types of healers. However, the research is scant, and I spend a lot of time referring to research in my book. But in some cases, those healings have, again, been verified. So the point is, belief is powerful medicine. Somehow this person had an ability to manifest material changes in the body and also to affect changes of mind and consciousness. I also write about somebody who's become a dear friend and collaborator, somebody by the name of Malcolm. I met him over 25 years ago when I was just beginning to learn more about what people call spiritual healing, which is what he considers himself. He calls himself a spiritual healer. He was a fascinating, is still a fascinating person. He was a coal miner with a very hard life working in the north of England in the mines. And he came to find that he had abilities in his hands, healing abilities in his hands. And again, I want to reiterate that Nobody heals us or fixes us. They're just conduits to healing. But nevertheless, Malcolm has been known for assisting people with all sorts of health conditions, including those deemed incurable and terminal by conventional Western medicine. He's quite a remarkable human being in that he's absolutely humble. He says he has no special powers. He's very religious, not in any particular Church of England, if you will, framework, but he says that it's God that does the healing, not me. He works in person. He touches people, and he also works remotely. He's been working remotely throughout the pandemic from England. He makes no promises. Some people have been healed. I know personally of stories of remarkable healings. A man in an end-stage coma whose funeral preparations were being made is alive today and living productively. A child born with a hole in her heart is today a healthy, vibrant teenager. A woman who is legally blind in one eye is now able to read and drive, which she couldn't do prior to her experiences with Malcolm. 
a woman with thyroid cancer scheduled for surgery, a gangrenous leg scheduled for amputation, even a dog that was hit by a car left to die on the side of the road. Those cases were cured after sessions with Malcolm. But not everyone is cured. I went to Abidjania in Brazil and I wanted to be cured. I wanted to be healed of my uterine tumors, which I had been trying to get rid of for years. And I wasn't cured or healed of those uterine tumors. So not everyone who sees Malcolm or who experiences his work is healed. Not everyone is cured. And again, that was my experience. So those are just a couple of the people I mentioned. Um, I mentioned somebody else whom I've never met personally. Is somebody by the name of Bratso, who is Croatian, who goes by that singular name, Bratso. And he's described as a healer who, through the power of his gaze, appears to transmit some sort of energy or information, if you will, to those who gaze back at him. And this energy or information appears to have the ability to help people heal from illness and to also transform circumstances and situations in their lives that may be challenging. He gazes in person. He gazes over the Internet. He's been doing that since the pandemic. Again, another remote experience. What I find heartening about him is he is truly humble. He asks for nothing in return, neither money nor notoriety. He doesn't accept fees for his services. And when he's in public, there's only a nominal fee for what the organizers may have to pay to rent the space if they have to do that. So there are stories. And again, there's stories. It's not scientific research, but there are stories of people being completely cured of illnesses that my tradition in Western medicine deems incurable, healing of emotional states such as anxiety and depression, complete shifts in circumstances and situations, healings of cancer, healings of other chronic degenerative diseases. He's also drawn the interest of scientists, of physicians, as well as physicists and engineers. The literature is scarce. The literature is scarce because it's hard to find support for this type of research. But in one study, there were exploring the effects of his gaze on water. Water has been a subject of study for many types of energetic healing modalities, such as distance healing like Qigong. And it appears that the physical properties of water were affected in the presence of his doing his thing, shall we say. So anyhow, the point being, I mentioned that because there are, if you will, reputable scientists exploring these phenomena, and they're not crazy people. So the fact that they're exploring them hopefully can lend more credibility to the possibility that the phenomena aren't just fantastical expressions of our imagination or wishful thinking. Again, not everyone experiences something. Not everyone heals from their conditions. And I just want to reiterate again what I said earlier is that healers don't fix or cure us. They help us enter that state where healing happens. 
They help us experience that state where healing happens. And I return again home to the essential theme of the book is that healing happens when our mind is calm and our body is relaxed and we are in a place of stillness. When we get out of our own way. Exactly. But also, and from a scientific standpoint, that place of calm, of a peaceful mind and a relaxed body, that toggles on the parasympathetic nervous system. And that's the system we need to have on for healing to happen. Healing won't happen otherwise. So in these cases of spiritual healing that you described, why are some people cured and others not? And what are the dynamics at play there? Tonio, I have no idea. And we might posit, I might posit that, you know, there are other elements, there are ineffable factors at play in our lives always. If you're open to this notion that reality is more than three-dimensional space and linear time, and it's beyond my thinking brain and the experiences of my five senses, maybe it's not my destiny. Maybe it wasn't my destiny to be healed of my uterine tumor for Zhao to just disappear it as it had happened for other people. Maybe that wasn't my destiny, if you will. And not that there's a, a cause and effect, a reason, a logic to healing. Maybe I was supposed to go through other experiences to teach me and grow me on the highway of my life, which I certainly did dealing with the growths in my belly. I certainly had more experiences after that that were incredible teachers that fed me and fueled my work and only expanded my abilities to do what I do. So maybe it wasn't my destiny for whatever reason, for those people who are familiar with the notion of prior incarnations and past lives. Uh, Again, I refer to chapter 12. There's a huge amount of research describing these phenomena that I hope can lend credibility for those who may be skeptical. But those experiences are at play, according to those who are the believers in our lives today in our relationships, in our life path, in our health, in our illnesses, even in our stigmata, even sometimes in marks on our bodies. This is a fascinating phenomenon that's been explored by scientists looking at the notion of past lives. So maybe it's not our destiny to heal. And also something else to say is I'd like to consider that healing the physical body need not be the goal. Healing the physical body need not be the goal. And first place, if we have a goal, if we're attached to that goal, we very much impede our ability to experience that goal, if that makes sense. Trying, 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 efforting, desiring a particular outcome doesn't mean that positive thinking don't work, but it's how we work with those thoughts. And it's what's underneath the root, the need for us to fix that physical issue. It's actually through surrendering to dis-ease and disease that dis-ease and disease can leave us, not by trying to get rid of it. I was always trying to get rid of those tumors. I did a naturopathic juice fast, which I don't recommend to anybody unless you're under the supervision of a professional, which I was. And I shrunk the tumor, the largest one, to one-third the size, but then it grew back. 
I was always trying to get rid of it. And what I found eventually was that my healing involves surrendering and also healing the emotional roots, the emotional links that were involved in that. And every physical issue has an emotional root or an emotional link. And we will never heal that physical issue if we don't heal those emotional links or that emotional link, singular or plural. But again, healing, we need not think of as fixing the physical body. And I also want to remind people that we don't get out of this life alive, right? And the more we can find peace around that, the more likely we're able to be in a healthier place in our physical bodies because that dominant fear that is so prevalent in our culture really does create an epidemic of disease in our society. And that epidemic of disease really can make us sick and keep us sick. One thing I thought I'd bring up is the correlation with quantum indeterminacy and how they've established that through observation, we collapse that quantum indeterminate state, that that reality, which has been described like the holographic state where everything is in a kind of a flux, an uncollapsed indeterminate flux state, and that when our ego consciousness separates itself from the rest of reality and observes it as separate, it collapses it, it collapses reality or its perception of reality into a discrete observable state. And I was thinking in terms of how that correlates or how that would likely correlate with our experience of our health conditions that wouldn't our health conditions also exist in an indeterminate state if we can allow ourselves to immerse ourselves in the present moment, which is that, which I think correlates to that indeterminate state. You know, Tonio, I love physics. And in fact, in college, physics was my main thing. (laughs) And modern physics and quantum mechanics were just so much fun for me. And I, I write a little bit in the book about modern physics and that's in that same chapter on consciousness. I describe what modern physics might offer us about the nature of consciousness because of what modern physics discovered, or I should say observed is more more correct a term than discovered, observed about light and very, very small particles. But I also have an issue with modern physics being used to explain or support notions of health and healing and the use of those terms. I think that there are also theories of modern physics that challenge the ideas that we often use to support these notions of consciousness. So yeah, while there might be some parallels in the theories of indeterminism and mind, I I, I don't really like to go there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I I just like to think that, okay, you know, when we can be in the moment, when we're not fueled by emotion or thought, and those have specific and unique definitions in the field of psychology, but I just use them simply as thought and emotion. 
when we can sink into stillness with whatever is and I explain that in the book. This actually means by being present with what is. We don't go to a place of nothingness, of stillness, of peace without being present with what we're experiencing in the moment. And we, whatever we're experiencing the moment, if it's an uncomfortable feeling, thought, if you will, or even a sensation, it's by being present with that thought, feeling, or sensation that we arrive at this place that I term in my book, absolute health, that we arrive at this place of inner peace. And it's that place where then those thoughts and feelings and awareness of sensations shift by being present with them. What we resist persists. Being present with what is shifts what is. So I kind of like to stay away from using the physics terminology as a link or an explanation because it doesn't work for me. I like to kind of keep it in, in the realm of our own human personal experience. It's been very sexy in the past number of decades to use the term quantum when we talk about health and healing in, in the arena of holistic health and these healing environments. But I think those terms are misused and I'm not fond of that. Well, I think that what I'm saying isn't, isn't necessarily in contradiction with what you're saying. Like for example, when we are resisting a health condition and living in fear of it, we're creating a adversarial dynamic with it. We are in a sense collapsing our health condition into a potentially worse state. And this is sort of what I'm alluding to and that when we um, can relax and accept whatever is going on, that we're no longer fueling that fear and adversarial relationship with the condition or with what we're experiencing physiologically or psychologically or emotionally whatever the condition may be and that in a sense when we are doing that we are getting out of our own way and allowing our body to take care of its job which is healing itself which it knows how to do it's specialized in doing that and we can only speculate on how we could even begin to to approach that from the outside. That was beautifully said. Thank you. Another thing I'd, I'd like to get into is some of the uh, simple yet wonderfully effective healing practices that you mentioned briefly in the book that we can use on our own, some of which I also use, such as Ho'oponopono and EFT, which is emotional freedom technique, and there are others that use similar principles. Could you talk about them and how they work and why they're, they're so effective? Sure. There's a chapter in the book that is called Healing Practices, which is in this part of the book called Welcome to the Guest House. I introduce what I call our friends. Our, our friends are healing practices that can assist us on that experience of finding our way 
what I call to home, which is absolute health, that place of peace of mind, of peace of body, where healing happens. And I describe a number of healing practices. It's certainly not comprehensive. They only reflect my own predilections and my own personal experiences and those that I've come to know well. I describe traditional Chinese medicine. I describe acupuncture in the context of that. I describe Ayurveda that I have used personally and that I wouldn't call myself an Ayurvedic practitioner, but I definitely use the notion of individualization in my work with people. I describe homeopathy. I describe aromatherapy. I describe body work and body-centered practices. The mind and body are instantaneously, not even instantaneously, they are one. There's no separation. So sometimes it can be very helpful to work with the body. I describe energy medicine techniques, and I, I consider EFT as one of those, which you mentioned. I describe also some therapies that are called regression therapies. I mentioned past lives before. I describe those. Um, and again, I remind readers that these practices and their practitioners don't fix or heal us, but they bring us to that place where healing happens. So while healing happens on our own, you know, it's, it's the inner healer. It's our own body, mind, spirit, if you will, that facilitates healing. Sometimes we do need a little help from our friends, as the song goes, we do need help from these practices and practitioners, and they help to support us to bring us to that place where healing happens. I don't know how much more you want me to describe about individual practices. I was interested in going into the ones that we can use ourselves, because most, many of the things that you mentioned are things that you have to work with a practitioner with, but some things like Ho'oponopono and EFT, you can learn and just do it yourself. And that I think is very practical because not everybody's going to have access to these kind of practitioners, let alone some of the psychic healers that you mentioned earlier. So I'm, I'm very interested in self-empowerment in this realm. Sure. And sharing that, making that available to others. I'll talk about EFT a little bit first, and then I'll talk about Ho'oponopono. Yeah, EFT is definitely a technique that we can do on our own. I find it helps to learn with somebody at first, but there are lots of ways you can learn on your own, too, since we're all, or many of us, are now connected online. There are lots of sources on the internet, and EFT is an energy medicine technique. It's also called tapping. It stands for emotional freedom technique. And yes, this idea of self-empowerment is so important because if we're not feeling connected, if we're not feeling empowered to our inner being, we are not going to be able to experience that place of peace of mind and peace of body where healing happens. And that even means, like I said, feeling difficult feelings. It doesn't mean avoiding or suppressing difficult emotions. It means being present to find a place of peace through experiencing them. So EFT, emotional freedom technique, is an energy medicine technique. I've used it both for myself and with people with whom I work. 
And it is a blend of Chinese medicine, meridian theory, and psychology. It involves tapping on particular acupuncture points on the body while at the same time talking out loud, speaking aloud, what we're feeling emotionally or what we may be sensing physically. It's essentially a process that asks us to be present in the moment with what we're feeling. And as we are experiencing a thought or a sensation, stating that out loud and tapping on various points along the body. And I will share, which I do in the book as well, that it sounded quite hokey to me when I first learned of it. But after I tried it for myself, um, I became a convert. I continue to use it for myself and with the people with whom I work. It's been studied by science. Again, I use a lot of science in my book to support various themes and various points. It's been studied and there's abundant research on its utility for anxiety, for depression, for PTSD, for physical pain, for addictions, and more. I heard, I just, this is hearsay, but I heard clinically through another practitioner of somebody who was suffering with COVID and about to be put on a vent, and EFT enabled this person to avoid that. Now, how do we know they wouldn't have avoided it otherwise, but it's just putting it out there. EFT has also been shown to improve blood pressure. It has effects on the heart rate. It can increase what we call heart rate variability, which is actually a measure of health. It can decrease cortisol, which is our stress hormones. There have been many, many studies. Overall, the research supports improved cardiovascular, e.g. heart and blood vessel system, immune system, and endocrine or, or hormone system function. We've also seen effects of EFT on the brain structure and function, and also how genes express themselves, how genes talk to us. Imaging studies have shown that there is a deactivation of the part of the brain that's involved in feelings and memories and instinctual behavior. That part of the brain is what gets us to react to a dog that's about to lurch at us. And we have to respond to that fear and we respond with a reaction. But sometimes we're in that state of reaction more often than not. That's called the sympathetic nervous system response. And that persistent sympathetic nervous system keeps us in a state of dis-ease and can fuel disease. They've also looked at EEGs or brainwave recordings and noticed that people with anxiety had different recordings after EFT. They're able to better regulate their emotions. And finally, there's really very exciting research on gene expression, which means how our genetic material executes the blueprint of our genes. And they've noticed that gene expression has been modified in many, many genes, including genes involved in immune system function, tumor suppression, meaning stopping tumor growth, insulin regulation, meaning relevant to diabetes, as well as learning cognitive function and memory. And I will say that I think this practice is remarkable. It can be used for any and all health concerns and issues whether it's a physical issue or a difficult emotion. And again, it's by being present with what is through this unique combination of talking aloud, 
and tapping on particular endpoints of meridians that we effectively neutralize, if you will. I'm doing a little bit of my own interpretation of what's going on, but I maybe it's I'm hoping it's useful. We effectively neutralize the hold, the emotional, the cognitive hold of those experiences in our body and on our body, because that cognitive hold, those emotions around it, they are 100% involved in keeping us in that state. And this process can neutralize that. It helps the body-mind return to a state of balance. It helps us to return to that place of absolute health. Again, as I said, one can do it on their own. I don't suggest one learning it on their own. I suggest exploring with a practitioner. And again, there are many, many resources on the internet where you can find videos where you can learn how to do it. So that's EFT. Yeah, going into EFT, I I also thought that it, it sounded very hokey. And in fact, it still sounds <laughs> very hokey to me. Yeah. However... I know that it is extremely effective for many people and there's some aspects of it that I absolutely love that I can feel immediately. Like for example, um, I mean, basically the talking part of it, you do it simultaneously with this tapping, um, basically saying, even though I have this condition going on or even though I'm experiencing this, I deeply and completely love and accept myself. And I love using that line, even without the tapping. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I just find that to be an extremely profound self-healing piece on its own. So combined with the meridian work, um, it just makes sense that this could be an extremely powerful healing practice. Yes, thank you for mentioning that, Tony. I didn't mention that. That which you described is called the setup phrase. It's how we start the steps of the EFT process, and it involves first stating a particular situation, but in this conditional form, saying, even though I'm feeling really anxious because my dog is about to bark and maybe interrupt our interview, I love and accept and forgive myself deeply and completely. And as you just heard, my setup words are a little different than yours, but it can all be variations on a theme. In other words, we're stating the issue, but we're saying, essentially, I'm still okay. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm still okay. There's nothing wrong with me. So we're allowing the issue to exist. And even if we don't feel that we are able to deeply and completely love ourselves or love and accept ourselves deeply and completely and forgive ourselves, just those intentions are very, very helpful. So that's how we start the EFT practice is by making this, even if this is happening, even if I'm feeling this, even if such and such, I love and accept myself deeply and completely, or as I mentioned, what I say is a little bit different. And also like, even if I'm hating myself right now and completely not accepting and not loving myself, I still deeply and completely love and accept myself, even though I don't accept and love myself. So you can work on it. It, it can be a, an unfolding dynamic process that you can work on to help break down anything that's going on. Yes, that's beautifully said too. And it is a way of just allowing what is, allowing what is completely. And that actually, I think, is a helpful segue into the uh, Ho'oponopono 
this is a practice that is about forgiveness. And I talk about this in a section in the book called Healing from the Inside Out. And the primary theme of that section is that all healing is ultimately emotional healing. Again, as I stated earlier, we cannot heal a physical disease unless we address the emotional components of that physical disease. We may suppress it, we may move it elsewhere, but we won't transform it from a presence in our life to be completely gone unless we heal the emotional link or root. And I talk about what I describe as emotional healing again from the inside out. And I I have a chapter each for anger, fear, and sadness, what I consider the three primary colors or three primary emotions. Yes, there are other emotions like joy and bliss and etc etc but i focus on these three primary emotions cuz these are the three primary emotions and we may have different terms for them anger may be frustration or intolerance or impatience grief sadness fear anxiety but anger fear and sadness are the three primary emotions that are linked to states of disease and disease in the body and i describe that healing anger involves forgiving Healing anger involves forgiving, but we cannot forgive. We cannot forgive unless we allow that anger first. And this is an element of that entire part of the book on healing from the inside out is that we have to allow our feelings before we can move beyond them. So I describe that forgiveness is a multi-step process. It involves first allowing our anger, being present with it. And I offer a number of tools as I do through each chapter in the book on exploring the practices that I describe and the ideas I describe. I offer a number of tools for exploring anger, for even discovering it, because many of us may have anger held within that we're not even connected to. And then being able to shift it. And I learned about Ho'oponopono from a patient of mine she was in her 80s and she had been estranged from both of her children for many many years and what she told me once that we're never victims we're only volunteers and i've held that and kept that and never forgotten that we're never victims we're only volunteers she had been a single mother for many many years she parented her two children on her own after a painful divorce she was both the mom and the dad and she was tough on her kids because she thought she had to be the mom and the dad and she thought that meant the dad was supposed to be tough and her kids had never forgiven her again as i said she was estranged from her children for many years she was angry about it she was very hurt But she was also very progressive and forward thinking, and she'd explored many healing traditions outside Western medicine. And she taught me about this practice of Ho'oponopono that she learned from a shamanic practitioner. It is a Hawaiian technique, a forgiveness technique that was developed by indigenous healers. And it's a multi-step process that first guides us to explore feelings of anger and hurt. Allowing and honoring those feelings without judgment, as I explained, we need to allow feelings before we can forgive and let go of feeling in order to heal them and to move beyond them. And then, and only then, can we begin to forgive 
by cultivating compassion and love for others. We can't forgive unless we can allow our feelings of anger. And recently, Ho'oponopono has been adapted by those of us in the West, and it's typically invoked as a prayer, kind of a mantra meditation prayer that's repeated over and over again. And that prayer is, I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. And she told me that she incorporated this prayer into her daily life. And when she did, her life started to change. Her health improved. She had gastrointestinal issues. She had arthritis issues. All these improved. And her relationships with her children changed. They actually re-entered her life. She stopped being a victim. She stopped blaming her children for their non-forgiving ways. And she explored that anger. She explored that pain. And as I talk about in the chapter of anger, there's always pain underneath anger. Anger is a cloak that protects us. There's often a lot of deep pain under that anger. And she remarked how powerful that prayer was in coming home full circle to healing herself and her relationship with her children. And different people say that prayer in slightly different ways. I have my own way that works for me, and I think everybody needs to find the specific way that they most resonate with, that there isn't a hard, fast rule, but but really it, it is essentially about self-forgiveness. I do a more involved mantra, so to speak. Like I say, I'm sorry, please forgive me for whatever's arising in me that's creating this problem. Thank you. I love you. Mm -hmm. So my approach is a little more involved. I know people who just do the, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Thank you. I love you as a mantra that they just keep repeating and it works for them. So everybody has their own way. My approach also helps me deal with things that are arising within me that I may not have a handle on or am at peace with. And by by using that approach of, I'm sorry, please forgive me for this, this feeling or this experience that I'm creating. Or I also relate it to, you know, the way I see the world around me, or if I see a conflict arising that either I'm directly involved in or that I'm just seeing happening, recognizing that this perception that I'm having is actually arising from inside of me and I ask forgiveness for this arising within me that's actually creating this situation. Right. So I'm taking I'm taking full responsibility for what I'm experiencing and perceiving because my perception is part of my experience. So even, even though there may be things that are happening beyond my what I might think of as my direct experience, it's still part of my direct experience. And therefore I have a responsibility for that. Yeah, that's lovely. I like the way you do that. That's just what works for me. But again, I have a dear friend who just does the uh, the simple mantra and it works beautifully for him and he loves it. Yeah. So again, it's like whatever works. Absolutely, whatever works. It doesn't have to be according to a recipe or protocol. You know, along the theme of the book, 
about presence and being present with emotions that we need to, again, as I said, allow and honor our anger, which in itself can often enable forgiveness without even trying, because it's by feeling and shifting and thus healing our own pain that those emotions of anger and that need for forgiving may just dissolve. Exactly. And how those of us who have old traumas that are anchored in our bodies, that are emotionally anchored in our bodies, this is an approach to working with that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Any approach that can do that kind of shifting and ultimately transforming can help support those types of trauma releases. Yeah, and we're all holding that. I mean, we all we all hold those types of energy in our bodies. It's just part of being human. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of learning how to work with all of that and also the dynamic of our own mind and how we can use that understanding in a skillful way to assist us. And the whole Ho'oponopono method, I find... For me, it just instantaneously brings me into the present moment in a way that almost nothing else does. Mm-hmm. So it's it's one of my favorite things, but I, I have a number of things that I use because it doesn't always work and, and they're different practices that, that don't always work in different situations. So I like to have backup. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I want to reiterate something I said earlier that it can be helpful to not make a goal out of our practices so the goal need not be healing the goal may not be forgiving the goal may not be shifting something it's to be present with the process that the shift can happen and it's very helpful and essentially necessary to not be attached to whether something's working or not. And whether it's working or not is yet again, another is rooted in emotion. Oh, I wanna get rid of this. I don't wanna feel this anymore. I don't wanna have this physical issue anymore. And where's that coming from? So it's all, again, returning to this idea of coming home to the moment, being present with all that we're experiencing in that moment. Even if it's, oh my gosh, I just want to get rid of this tumor. I don't want to feel angry towards this person anymore. I'm feeling so anxious. How do I get rid of it? It's those emotions that are fueling those those wants. And it's about being present with them again. Yep. And that's where uh, the guest house is such a powerful, powerful metaphor for that whole dynamic. Yes, I find it so. And that that's how the poem spoke to me when I actually found it in the middle of a sleepless night when I was beginning my book writing journey and I wasn't sure what to do and I was kind of kept awake with worry. <laughs> and I, I went to my bookshelf and this book, no kidding, this book literally fell off my shelf. It was a gift from my younger brother, my only sibling, who's definitely a partner on this journey of life with me who's a remarkable and special person and shall i read the poem now shall we yes i would actually love it if you would read the poem sure for those of you who aren't familiar with him the poem is by jalaluddin rumi who 
was a Sufi mystic and poet. And in spite of the fact that he dates to the 11th century, his teachings are profound and just as timely today as perhaps they were then. I'm assuming they were meaningful in the lives of those experiencing then. So the guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And that really ties all of what we've been talking about together. Yes, it's a poem that I start the book with. So hoping that can be meaningful for readers as they make their way through the book. It's a metaphor for being present with all that is. And that is our way home to this place that I call the guest house in my book. It's a place where the living is easy, all comes effortlessly, and we're taken care of. And it's through just being present that we will find the living can indeed be easy, that things can come effortlessly, and it is as if we're taken care of. But we have to begin by welcoming all the guests. Exactly. All that is experienced. Yes, exactly. And of course, that can be one of the most difficult things to do. Yeah, it's difficult because we fear doing so because of our notions of doing so. And once we do it, once we can welcome that worry, that meanness, that anxiety, that anger, that grief, once we can simply be present with what is, it's no longer difficult. It's the difficulty that arises in the contemplation of doing it. And in fact, our brains are hardwired not to go there. You know, our brains are hardwired to avoid difficult emotions. It didn't serve us. Um, it didn't serve our ancestors. It didn't serve us when we were trying to navigate prehistoric or cavemen and woman life right, to stop and be present with your worry or your fear or your anger. But nowadays we live in different times and it's by resisting that we create stress in the body. So it's the difficulty that arises in the notion of it, not the actual doing of it. So I encourage people who might explore my book as you make your way through it, just try the exercises, just do it. And you'll find that, wow, it's not so bad you know it's not so bad just sitting still and exploring this mm -hmm. yeah that was my experience i love 
the exercises that you presented in the book. I I found them to be wonderful. It was like instructions and in how to peel the onion of life. I'm so glad. I'm so delighted. That was so for you. That's great. Mm -hmm. So Trish, thank you so much for coming back and talking more with me. Oh, Tonio, thank you for having me. I, I'm really honored, as I said, when we started. And I'm just so, so touched by the deep, deep dive you took into my book. Thank you. That's just fuel and inspiration and encouragement for me to keep on keeping on. So thank you. And thank you so much for the book. And let's stay in touch. And I look forward to hearing uh, about future things that you do. I would love that. Yes, let's stay in touch. Well, until then, be well. And you too. Bye bye. Bye. I've been speaking with Patricia Musum. She's a Western trained medical doctor and pioneer in the synthesis of science, holistic health and contemporary spirituality. She's the founder of transformational medicine a whole person approach to health and well-being. And she's the author of this wonderful book that we've been talking about, Beyond Medicine, A Physician's Revolutionary Prescription for Achieving Absolute Health and Finding Inner Peace. There's so much I've been wanting to tell you. Come on. When I was very little, my people explained to me the meaning of life. It was very interesting and not at all what you'd expect. They also explained that we're not allowed to tell. The reason for that is pretty much exactly what you'd expect. It's all that stuff about how everyone has to come to the truth on their own. You can tell someone something, but, you know, they won't believe it unless they find out for themselves. And even if they believe it, they won't really understand it without going through all the stuff they personally have to go through to get to it personally. Each one for themselves. It's a lot of stuff. When my people explained this to me, I understood it to be true. But as I lived longer and traveled widely through your world, I noticed how learning happens and how you pick things up one at a time. A word here, an idea there, a piece of music, something you've heard before, but it never meant anything till now. Now. Because you're ready. Because your own personal experience brought you to this precise moment of hearing. You take it in, and it changes who you are and what you know. It changes everything. This phenomenon is known to two-thirds of the human race as karma, and to the other third as cognitive transference of affect. No, really. <laughs> the neat part is, it's the way things work. It's your fate interlocked with everyone and everything else. Immense, interweaving, multicolored clouds of desire and repulsion, swirling and seething and cresting and ebbing and attraction and aversion, pulsing through time, 
infinitely complex puzzle pieces of one thing instead of another, turning left instead of right, saying yes instead of no, looking at him instead of her, catching that plane instead of waiting for a later flight, all unfolding in a cushion kaleidoscope of destiny, a dazzling mosaic, the quantum soup. Then, sometimes, just for a second, the frame shifts and the whirling fragments hesitate. A little gap appears in the fabric. Something different can happen in that moment. Something unexpected. Something that is not what it was going to be. If everything is ready, if your own personal soup of destiny has brought you to this exact moment of hearing, Right here. Right now. Listen. The dance of destiny got you here. The next step is up to you. So, that's how change happens. Of course, it's easier to get a glimpse of all this if you have no pupils in your eyes and can see thought forms. Or if you're like those birds who can see the world from above in ultraviolet, or the animals who can sense the Earth's magnetic field. Still, even humans have the capacity to see this. A lot of very cool people have figured out a number of ways to stop and take a look at how it all works, to see if you can't get a handle on what it is you're a part of, what is this thing we're embedded in. To do this, you must stop and focus your attention. As the Zen master said, don't just do something, sit there. And when you do, the gaps will grow wider more frequent, more available to you. You'll see how all these puzzle pieces flow along, breathing in and out, within you and without you. Choices will multiply. Your life will open up to you like the furry white belly of a playful tiger. Your life. Your precious life. The one you're living in order to become conscious. To become awake. You'll begin to notice how change happens with every breath the earth takes. And in time, you'll find your place in that breath, in that moment, in that changing. As Eden Philpot said, the universe is full of magical things, patiently waiting for our wits to grow sharper. And you'll swim like a fish in the soup of change. Surf City. Life lesson number one. Constructed according to plans formulated by the architects of being and appears on the inhabited planets either by direct importation or as a result of the operations of the life carriers of the local universes. These carriers of life are among the most interesting and versatile of the diverse family of universe suns. They are entrusted with designing and carrying creature life to the planetary spheres. And, after planting this life on such new worlds, they remain there for long periods to foster its development. Support your local life carrier. This message has been a public service announcement brought to you by Your Local Universe.
Life Carrier, and Little Frida's Life Lessons come courtesy of ZBS Media at zbs.org. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.